0: I did find myself adjusting my behaviour to protect the male ego and so as to kind of seem soft and feminine and compliant and docile and like anyone, any of my friends will say that those are not words that they would use to describe me.
1: Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them, and how they find the courage to face it head-on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Codex Beauty Labs. I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I'm putting products on my skin, I don't really know how clean the ingredients actually are. Often beauty companies make these bold promises about their ingredients, only to be short on reality – But Codex Beauty Labs, on the other hand, represents what is good in the beauty industry today. What I love about Codex is their transparency and commitment to science. Their pioneering products are composed of clean and meticulously sourced ingredients and have clinically proven skincare benefits. Even more reassuring is that their wonderful founder is an award-winning PhD scientist herself. Simply put, Codex exceeds market expectations in sustainability and cleanliness. Each day, they work towards their mission to blend plant biology and biotech innovation and to create true, long-lasting plant-based biotech beauty. I'm really happy I found these wonderful products and I highly recommend them. They smell absolutely delicious and make your skin feel silky soft. You can find Codex at codexbeauty.com. My guest today is Ortega Owagba, best-selling author, speaker, consultant, and podcaster. Ortega's new book, We Need to Talk About Money, boldly confronts the murky relationship we all have with money, exploring how and why it controls and influences our lives. In a world governed by our bank balance, this book shines a light on an issue we're all too often afraid to address. In this episode, Otega explains why one of her biggest fears is running out of money. She explores the issue of the so-called beauty tax, and she tells us about the battles she's had to fight against misogyny in the workplace. I started by asking Otega why money holds such a power over us, and why we shy away from talking about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you said, money has so much power over us it influences every aspect of our lives even when we don't realize it and part of what I try to do with the book is kind of reveal a little bit more about how money plays a role in our lives whether that's about what sort of job you're able to do you know where you're able to live what sort of friends you have what school you end up going to um and then obviously the more emotional side how you sleep at night and how you just generally feel day to day whether you feel stressed and anxious about money or whether you feel relaxed about it but As you said, and kind of as the title of the book alludes to, money is something that we really don't talk about openly as a society, especially within Britain. I think we are particularly reluctant to talk about it here and in many ways it's understandable i mean part of the reason why money isn't spoken about openly in britain is just kind of historical like i think especially during the victorian era it became this topic that was seen as slightly gauche to talk about in company or in polite company um so we don't talk about it socially that much but also as a society we tend to judge people and i even refer to myself in this but we tend to judge people depending on how much money they have and so there's this real narrative that if you have a lot of money and if you're wealthy it's because you're smart and you're clever and you work hard and all these other things and vice versa if you don't have a lot of money I think the media in particular has been really successful at demonizing the poor and implying that people who don't have money don't have it because they're lazy or stupid don't work hard they deserve it which obviously isn't the case as I talk about in the book there are so many structural reasons that determine who has money and how much of it and, and who doesn't have money. Um. But I think it's really kind of tied up into notions of self-worth. You know, people determine their own self-worth by how much they earn, how much money they have. And it becomes a really fraught subject where like your personal value and even your moral value starts to get tied up into your bank balance. And people want to be good or want to be seen as good and not having money isn't seen as a positive trait. And so I think stemming from that, it then becomes this thing that's quite awkward to talk about socially. You know, then you have differences among friendship groups or with your partner about who has money, who doesn't have money. And it just becomes this whole maelstrom of topics. And we're never taught how to talk about it. You know, you go through you can go through your entire life not really addressing this topic head on. Like it's not something we have a lot of practice at. And so I think that's kind of one of the main reasons why it's so tricky to talk about.
1: Yeah, that's so true. We we are never taught about it, so it feels like we don't really know how to even talk about it. And salaries, you know, within what you just said, talking about salaries is just something that we just don't discuss. And also in your book, you talk about the connection money has to sexism, racism, class, and, and even beauty. And in a world that I feel is still not really ready to admit its flaws, and I think to speak out like you do is courage in itself in your book. And have you always wanted to speak
0: out against injustice from an early age? Um, That's a really good question. I think I've always been quite opinionated. Um, My (laughs) family and my parents will attest to that. So and I think, yeah, I've probably had a fairly keen sense of social justice from a relatively young age like I think when I was a teenager at school I used to kind of get involved with lots of like feminist projects and like conferences and write articles and that sort of thing and then as I've got older that's become more broad and I think especially in my 20s and you know especially in my later 20s when I became really really aware of how class and privilege really affects life outcomes so I went to this private school and had a scholarship there and the narrative there was very much like you guys are so lucky to be here which is true and how can we you know raise money for scholarships and bursaries that mean more people can attend the school which I guess is kind of fair enough like I'm not necessarily expecting a private school to advocate for its own abolition but there was never the question of the fact that this system that we are part of and that we're benefiting from is fundamentally unfair so I think probably in my teenage years I didn't really think about it like that but as I emerged into the workplace and saw the advantages that private education gives and also how that affects what jobs people are able to do and what careers people get into I suddenly realized that it was just a lot more toxic than I had thought in my youth and then obviously with race as well race isn't really something that was talked about when I was at school and I think conversations about race and especially the past five years and with the kind of advent of the Black Lives Matter movement they've become much more mainstream and I think even for me it's been something that I've engaged with a lot more and again, seeing how that affects people's lives and and being ready to confront how that has affected my life I think has definitely galvanized me to talk about inequality and, and social injustice in you know much broader ways. And
1: looking at your childhood fears, you said that the dark was a big fear. <laughs> and in your email, yeah. you said big time, yeah, <laughs> which I loved. You had to sleep with the lights on for much of your of your childhood.
0: Yeah, I was so terrified of the dark. I think it's because I was allowed to watch movies, like all these like Channel 5 kind of horror movies and like murder movies that I probably shouldn't have been allowed to watch. Um, and like, I used to watch like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I had all these like... <laughs> I had very clear depictions of all these demons that I thought were kind of waiting to get me in the dark. And so like, if we, if we were watching like TV as a family or like a movie on like a Saturday night, I would have, if I needed to use the bathroom, it'd be like everyone in the family would draw lots to not have to accompany me to the bathroom because it meant I had to like go into the hallway and switch the light on and like walk through the dark to do that. So I was just always really scared of the dark. But thankfully, as I've gotten older, it's kind of <laughs> just normalised. <laughs> you, don't, but yeah. you don't
1: still have to sleep with a light on? <laughs> no, I don't. I, couldn't,
0: I can't sleep with the light on now. But yeah, that took me till I was about 12 or 13 or something.
1: And looking at your adult fears and, and your fears now, you said that running out of money and financial destitution, that would be your long term fear, if you like. Where do you think that fear stems from for
0: you? I think it's probably quite large to do with some of my childhood experiences like I talk about in the book that when my family moved to this country when I was five years old so we didn't have a lot of money we weren't you know destitute but we didn't have a lot of money and things were tough for a number of years and you know kind of continuing into my teenage years and I think that did make a lasting impression on me and probably gave me an anxiety around money that has kind of continued into my adult years like that's where I think it comes from and that's kind of the only explainable reason that I can find but at the same time it's kind of different like you know I don't think my sister feels the same way and we had the exact same upbringing but I've definitely always been quite panicky and anxious about money and I think you know when I actually try and sit down and think about what is it that I'm worried about it's the idea of being without and finding myself in a situation where I can't pay my bills or I just don't have enough money to do the things that I want or need to do and not in a particularly lavish way like going on like a holiday to like a five-star resort but just I worry about not having a roof over my head which I don't know it's it's slightly irrational like I've never even come close to that in my life now that I think about it but I think in many ways it's kind of driven how I operate with money and the fact that I'm quite cautious like I'm definitely a big saver as opposed to, I mean, I am a spender as well, but never at the expense of being sensible with money, never at the expense of having quite a decent amount of savings, you know, in my bank balance. And that is what I need to sleep properly at night, to be honest.
1: I think for me, when I was a child, money was never spoken about either. And I feel perhaps maybe our parents' relationship around money sometimes becomes we take on that and becomes our problem even if it's not conscious if that makes sense
0: yeah definitely I think the way in which our relationships with the money are formed a lot of you know your childhood and teenage years is crucial to that and you know psychologists refer to that process as financial socialization so you pick up these beliefs and habits and traits around money from your parents in the same way you pick up you know their dna and for some people, the process is, re- is really linear. So they completely adopt their parents' attitude to money. And other times, people, you know, completely reject that and want to go in the opposite way. And I think there are very few people whose childhood upbringing and that kind of financial situation doesn't then go on to influence how they view money and how they handle money as an adult. So it can be for better or for worse. Like, I think for me, something that I always think of as a real gift is that. My parents were very financially literate and, and, you know, very good with money. And those are habits that I picked up. So I opened my first bank account when I was eight years old. With My mum my took me and my sisters to the bank to open a bank account. And I put in £20 pounds I'd been given by, like, an auntie as, like, birthday money. And I put that in and that was there for, like, a couple of years. So, you know, concepts like saving and interest would just things I picked up very naturally and my parents were always very keen as I started working you know in my 20s they were like make sure you're saving money and you know don't get credit cards if you don't need them don't get into unnecessary debt you know always save more than you spend you know don't spend more than you earn essentially and those habits have kind of really embedded themselves into my psyche and I think have been responsible for the fact that I am you know, I've always said that I am good with money. It's just that I haven't always felt good about money. In terms of the financial literacy side of things, I definitely picked that up from my parents. so I'm very grateful for that.
1: And also, I, I think in this time, so many people understandably feel, you know, this time of COVID, that those fears around money are, just have gone through the roof because of loss of jobs and not knowing where their next paychecks will come from. And you said in your book that this time you have felt real despair, like you've you've never felt before. Do you think that that's through a lack of control because sometimes the problems that we're faced with, I mean not all of them, but sometimes we we can control them. And in this time it feels like there is no control because we just don't know what's going to
0: happen. Mm, definitely. I mean, when I write about that in the book, it's it was very much in the context of my Also trying to buy a flat at the same time, which during the pandemic, especially as a self-employed person, buying on their own was absolutely horrendous. And so I found whilst I was really, I felt really lucky to kind of even be in that position and and to kind of have savings as we went into lockdown. I also found it really stressful trying to navigate that. And in many ways, my income did dip and and, in some places dry up. And, you know, as you just said, it was really the lack of control. I didn't know when the lockdowns were going to start and end, had no idea how the pandemic was going to turn out, had absolutely no idea that it was going to drag on for as long as it has and probably longer and there was just this utter lack of control in my life and I think one of the things that makes people feel most unhappy is that feeling of lacking autonomy, whether it's about a pandemic, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your relationship, like that is such a fundamental cause of human unhappiness. So for me, and I imagine for many others, that kind of uncertainty and not knowing was really, really mentally and emotionally tough. And I think it continues to be tough, even if, okay, fine, you are in an okay position with your job, just not knowing what's around the corner. I think we are still very much in this state of uncertainty. You know, just a few minutes ago, I saw something on Twitter about potential lockdowns coming in in September. And mentally, I'm thinking about how that might affect my work and my earnings. Like, you really just don't know and the pandemic has just been and you know I, I say this as somebody who is actually relatively insulated from the worst effects of it like i haven't lost my job you know i still have sources of income i have a roof over my head i touch wood and thankfully haven't lost anyone that is you know close to me to to the virus but there are also a lot of people who are already living on a knife edge not just in the uk but globally And the pandemic literally came along and tipped them over the edge, like tipped them over the precipice. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a really kind of tough one. And I'm still kind of trying to navigate it as best I can. Taker, I wanted to
1: talk to you more about you write, well, you write so beautifully, but you write a lot about your experiences in the workplace and I would like for you to talk about how you battled through those workspaces that very often were and are dominated by men and that um, lad culture that we so often see. How you how you navigated your way through that?
0: I mean, I I feel very complimented that you said that I battled my way through, but the reality is I didn't. You know, I quit. I, I left these jobs after. A year, two years, eight months, in one case, because I just couldn't bear it, and I think that is a huge part of why i'm now self employed because unfortunately, especially in the creative industries, but I think there are commonalities across all industries, so many offices and so many workplaces are really toxic places, um particularly if you're a woman, and particularly if you're a black woman or a woman of color i found it really really hard like i I didn't want to present that narrative of like oh i've bravely overcome i think for me in the end i just escaped into self-employment into working for myself and i feel very grateful that i've been able to do that and i definitely (laughs) i definitely wouldn't go back but there aren't necessarily you know some of these a lot of what i talk about are huge kind of structural issues and I, i definitely think knowing what i know now if i were to go back into any of those workplaces, they'd probably handle it slightly differently. Like I have a lot more agency. I know myself a lot more. I'm much more outspoken, but actually that's the benefit of hindsight. Me talking about what I would do as a 30 year old now, going back into those workplaces that I entered at the age of 21, is kind of irrelevant because you're just not going to have that experience under your belt. But I do really, really hope that in talking about my experiences, other people and especially other women are able to identify what is going on with them because the thing i know from having spoken to people often people who worked in the same places as i did and a few people who've already read my book is that my experiences weren't that unusual like people and women especially all over the world are going through those same things and i think one of the problems for me was that i didn't know that and i felt like i was the problem so i felt like The reason my boss was talking down to me was because I was stupid and wasn't good at my job. And, you know, I felt like the reason that I was, you know, being forced to do all sorts of like really low level admin way beyond when I, you know, kind of had the experience to not be was just how things were. And the benefit of hindsight and, you know, a lot of research and talking to other people has shown me that there were really toxic dynamics at play there. And so I do hope that other people and other women reading it, reading my book, will find it useful in identifying the situations they're in, and then the solutions are very much up to them. I'm like, do you stay there? Do you speak out about it? Do you go to management or do you go to a new workplace or do you quit and do you become self employed like there are so many variables, and often one of those variables is you know your financial situation that I can't necessarily tell people what they should do in that situation, but I do really, really want people to recognize the forces that they're up against and realize that it's not just them like these are long established dynamics that are contributing to them having these really horrible experiences
1: you also write about asking for a pay rise as a woman and I feel like this comes up a lot and my friend the other day was telling me how terrified she was to have that conversation with her boss, feeling like she's always tiptoeing around him and being undermined, even though she's been in the same company for years. And you wrote in your book, you said, by negotiating pay, we violate what society deems to be normal female behavior. And there are few things more threatening than a woman who operates outside the bounds of normality. And I wanted to ask if you found yourself adjusting your behavior to protect the male ego,
0: yeah, definitely. um, I'm quite an opinionated, quite kind of confident person, and that is the attitude that I entered the world of work with when I was twenty or twenty one so definitely my first job, and I write about this in my book i I'd, I'd been there like four months and I asked for a pay rise and a promotion, and that was just what seemed logical to me because. I knew that I was doing more than the job I'd been hired for. And so I was like, well, I deserve a promotion because I'm doing what people, you know, a couple of rungs senior to me are doing, and I'm doing it well. So I just kind of marched into my boss, asked for a pay rise, asked for a promotion, got it. And so for me, that was normal. But by the time I'd been working for a couple of years and by the time I moved to another agency where the gender roles were really, really regressive, I'd say, um, really, really kind of quite old school gender roles, that kind of attitude did start to seep into my mentality. And I did find myself adjusting my behaviour, so as to protect the male ego, and so as to kind of seem kind of soft and feminine and compliant and docile. And like anyone, (laughs) any of my friends will say that those are not (laughs) words that they would use to describe me ever. But I just felt like I had to go with the kind of established way of doing things and I really struggled with that as well because I think you know pretending to be someone you're not you can only do that for so long before it becomes a real struggle and I definitely struggled um and even when I did ask for pay rises like I you know when I was starting at Vice, I tried to negotiate pay rise and was turned down you know for various vague reasons you know. I was annoyed about it, but also at that point I was so desperate for the job that I just kind of took it anyway. And had I been in a position where I was sort of more kind of take it or leave it about the job, then maybe I could have negotiated a bit harder. But as it was, I didn't want this job opportunity to go away. But something that I talk about in the book is you know overall, if I look at the course of the past ten years, when it comes to money, I've always negotiated, especially now that I'm self-employed, like I'm. I'm very comfortable negotiating and like to an extent sometimes I have people who do that for me like a literary agent whatever but you know smaller jobs day-to-day stuff I'm very comfortable having these conversations about money and it's so funny because the prevailing narrative is that women don't do that and I found that so intriguing and then I kind of did a bit of research and did some digging and found that studies have shown that women do despite all these obstacles women do ask for money and pay rises at the same rate that men do but they're just more likely to be told no. And that to me seems so clearly embedded in sexism and sort of perceived traits that women should have. And I think people find it more offensive when women ask for money. And it's it's men and women as well, you know. We're conditioned to think that power and money and respect and credibility and all those things are the domain of men and it's completely natural, normal for men to kind of demand power and demand money. But when you do that as a woman, it's seen as being somehow, you know, unfeminine. And I actually wrote an article about this a couple of years ago. When I tweeted out, it went absolutely viral and it was just being shared so often. And the thing that women were saying were like, yeah, this is me. Like I have asked for pay rises, but they'd had responses from people being like, oh, it's, don't you think it's quite inelegant? of you to ask for that and it's like if that's not a gendered word to use i don't know what it is like, i can't imagine a man even if you're saying no to a man asking for pay rise i can't imagine someone implying that it's somehow inelegant or somehow unfeminine or not fitting of their gender to ask for more money and i think that's a myth that i'm really keen to bust because it then puts the blame back on women for not you know for not having as much money and for these pay gaps because people are like oh well they don't they just don't ask And actually, it's that we are asking, but we're just more likely to be told no.
1: And one of the most, I think, revealing bits about in your, I found in your book was when you speak about the beauty tax. You say it's been the cost of beauty habits that's weighed on you most heavily. And I'd love you to talk a bit more about this experience.
0: Yeah. And so when I said the cost of beauty habits has weighed on me most heavily, that was very much kind of at specific times. So I was kind of referring to beauty work, like getting haircuts or pedicules or manicures or facials. And at various points when writing the book, it was the cost of them that weighed most heavily. But then actually, other times when I've been really busy, it's been the amount of time that that takes out of my diary. And it's just something that I think about, I think I've thought about it more now that I'm a writer and often have to do kind of like public speaking and, and public facing stuff. And you know, I see myself as not low maintenance, but not high maintenance either. I'm kind of mid-maintenance. And just the sheer amount of stuff that I feel the need to do in order to kind of look presentable and acceptable for the world in a way that I know that men don't have to do. So, you know, there'll be times where like I'm on my way to a meeting or an important event and I need to make time to make sure that I get a manicure on the way just so that I look presentable and well-groomed. And of course, you could argue that I don't have to do those things. And I think a lot of people would say, well, that's your choice. But as I explore in the book, those things are important for how women are perceived. And I found studies that demonstrate that women who are perceived to be well-groomed, so, you know, having your hair dyed and neat and tidy, having your eyebrows plucked, you know, wearing makeup, having a matching mani-pedi, earn more money than women who are perceived to be poorly groomed or ungroomed. And that to me was just not at all surprising because I think being well groomed, especially in the workplace is for women is kind of construed as a sign of professionalism. And I want to appear professional. I want to be professional. And unfortunately the way society is set up is such that there are certain expectations of women when it comes to beauty standards and much as I'd love to reject them and and do, I think, find myself rejecting them a little bit more now that I'm older and actually especially with the pandemic i think not having to wear makeup during the pandemic <laughs> i'm like really reluctant to get back to you know having a full face of slap whenever i have an event or something like that but um i just kind of wanted to demonstrate that women choosing to do beauty work isn't just merely born of vanity it's also born of the way society treats us if we choose not to do that and the fact that you can actually lose money if you decide not to do that like the fact that i think the percentage was well-groomed women have been shown to earn up to 40% more than their poorly groomed counterparts. And like, that's a big chunk of money. And I also know that being a sort of, I guess, public figure or doing things where, I guess, my photo gets splashed, out, splashed around a lot, being perfectly honest, I know that the fact that I look a certain way and fit into a certain box works to my advantage, to be perfectly blunt. And I think I just wanted to be really clear about, because i definitely wish the world was organized differently but i also don't know that i have the moral character to completely take a stand against those things and so i really wanted to explore the cost both financial and time and spiritual and emotional for women of having to do those things because it's also you then look at magazines and look at pictures of famous women and start comparing yourself to them and the level of things that you feel that you need to do to look like a normal person increases. Suddenly you think, Oh, I need to get facials. I need to get my teeth whitened. I need to do X, Y, Z. And it just kind of spirals out of control, especially if your work involves you being in any way public, which, you know, as an actress, I'm sure you can identify. And as a writer, strangely enough, even though my work is books, I tend to be at the front of my work more and more. Um, And so that was, you know, I refer to that as the beauty tax and, I just thought it was really important to discuss that because I I do feel like for me doing beauty work has always felt like an investment I guess in my kind of career but I was quite glad to find studies that actually back that up. And also I
1: found uh, what I found interesting as well is that now it seems like it's not just people in the public eye that feel this pressure it's it's just the you know just a regular person because of Instagram because of social media because of the, well the machine that is advertising.
0: Yeah, I think the standard you know the beauty standard for average women has just increased exponentially in the past couple of decades. Like something that I find really interesting is when you see photos of like actresses, like A list actresses, like on the red carpet in like kind of nineties and early noughties, and and I don't mean this in an insulting way, but their level of grooming was so much lower. Than what is expected now. Like now, people are expected and women are expected to be picture perfect. And that filters down from celebrities and, you know, the professionally beautiful actresses, musicians, pop stars, models, whatever. It filters down to the average woman. And so suddenly you're comparing yourself. You're not suddenly saying, oh, you know, I want to dye my hair red like Julia Roberts. You're saying, oh, I need to have veneers and need to have Botox and need to have, you know, fillers like you know all of that stuff has become so normalized all of that kind of like tweakments and like plastic surgery has become so normalized and I honestly don't judge any woman. I haven't done anything like that but I don't judge any woman who feels pressure to do it because I think the beauty standards you know thanks to people like the Kardashians have just become really high and they're so easily disseminated like previously you'd only have seen pictures of these sorts of women you know in a glossy magazine or like in a movie or something like that and now you can access them any time of day using the internet using social media we are constantly inundated with these airbrushed filtered retouched photos of women who've had a lot of work done who have a lot of money and resources and time to spend making themselves look a certain way and then we us normal women absorb that and decide that's what we need to do as well and it's it's just incredibly insidious
1: if I were to ask you about conquering your fears and how you face your fears how would you say you you do that
0: I think when it comes to money and actually when it comes to interpersonal relationships as well I think for me my attitude has always been to face it head on so like in my interpersonal relationships like if I feel like I'm having a problem with a friend or something's a bit weird for better or for worse I always bring it up which obviously leads to can often lead to kind of arguments and sometimes my friends are like why did you have to bring that up with him or her like why can't you just let things lie and I'm like if something's bothering me I have to bring it up like I can't keep these things to myself um and then when it comes to money I think especially the anxiety that I felt in my 20s I think something that helped me assuage it a bit was to just face it head on. So to look through my finances, to put together a budget, to open an ISA, to open a savings account, to, you know, when I became self-employed, to get an accountant, to go through my expenses, to really get to know the nitty gritty, the ins and outs, because the only thing worse than knowing for me is not knowing. And I feel like having information and knowing exactly where I stand, that makes me feel more secure. So. I know exactly what's going on with my finances at any given moment in time. And it's really important, like I have an accountant now that I'm self-employed, and it's really important that we talk about that on a regular basis. And yeah, I think with money, I think it can be really tempting to hide your head in the sand. And I understand that, but that's just not something that's ever, ever worked for me. And I just can't see myself doing that.
1: And when you get knockbacks, how do you
0: personally deal with the knockbacks? I think knockbacks, I think you just get better at it with experience and the more of them you have. So being self-employed, I think I get far more knockbacks on a kind of day-to-day basis, like in terms of my professional life, than I ever used to when I was uh, working a nine-to-five. And for the first year or two, I found that so upsetting. I I remember when I set up, I used to run this platform, this community for working women called Women Who?, And I remember when I set it up and the launch event, you know, I was trying to get different women to sit on a panel and sometimes people wouldn't reply to my emails or they'd say no. And I actually went home and cried about it to my mum. I was so upset. I took it so personally. By the time you've been doing that for a year or two or four years, which is how long I was running it for, you really just learn to brush those things off. And I'm like, oh, I guess they're busy. Like, I I don't take it as a reflection on me. And something that I have really realised is that there are so many factors that go into any knockback that you might get the budget might have dried up you know somebody might have decided not to commission something in the end there are so many reasons and I never assume that I know everything that's going on and I also just try not to take it personally so I think I've yeah it is it's it's a kind of a muscle that you build I think and actually the more knockbacks you get the easier it gets to deal with them. In my world, there's so much
1: rejection and uh, being told no and acting, just all these auditions and um, not getting a lot of them. And it's the same. People sometimes ask me, how do you deal with that rejection? It must be really tough because it's like going to loads of interviews in a week and not getting them. And it's the same. It's, it's almost like a, a like a muscle
0: memory. <laughs> yeah, and I try not to get attached to things until like, you know, you properly get the green light and like a contract is signed or you actually start working on it because that's another thing that I had to learn is that just because somebody approaches you for a project or wants to work with you on something doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen. And so again, in my first year or two of being self-employed, if somebody would send me an email being like, hey, we want to do this thing, we want you to be involved. I'd be like, great, you know, it's sorted. I'm doing it. I'd start telling people about it and then it would just go away. And so now I've become very detached from... Things when they come into my inbox I'm like this isn't going to happen until it actually happens and so I've basically learned to lower my expectations massively and that is has been really helpful as well
1: and you meet incredible people on your amazing podcast in good company which I love by the way how much personal growth do you get from those conversations
0: so much um so much I'm glad you asked because with my podcast I only ever interview people that I'm really really interested in and for the most part they tend to be people whose work I have followed for years and so whose at least professional lives and sometimes personal lives I know quite intimately and it, I think it allows for a really rich conversation that really kind of gets the most out of them but you know I, I learned so much because ultimately what I'm trying to do with this podcast is kind of try to share their insights with a broad audience, but quite selfishly, I also get to ask them the questions that I most want to know. And so it's a real privilege to be able to speak to all these incredible women who I really admire, and then to just ask them a bunch of quite personal questions about the aspects of their lives that I'm interested in. And that is, you know, why I continue to do it. Like it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a big money maker. it's a lot of work to do it, but you know, the responses I get from it are really, really encouraging as well. But also it's the fact that there is, I've had so many conversations via that podcast that have changed the way I look at the world or have really changed the way that I operate on a day-to-day basis and really important fundamental changes to my life that wouldn't have happened without the podcast. So it's, it's really just, it's weird. It's almost like being able to have really intimate one-on-ones with women and then also to turn that into... My kind of professional work is, is actually just sort of killing two birds with one stone. It's it's really great.
1: I would now love to ask you these quick fire questions that I ask all my guests at the end. And you can answer these in, in, in whatever way you like. Who inspires you the most?
0: I mean, is it really cheesy to say my mum? Because she really no. does inspire me. She's got such an incredible work ethic and she is just an incredibly compassionate and um, resilient woman. And I really just hope that I can kind of emulate that. And she's just so hugely supportive of my work and of me in ways that I think has really made a lot of the work that I've done over the past couple of years possible. So it's slightly corny, but I, when people ask me that question, the genuine answer for that is my mum.
1: My mum would be up there too, so it's definitely 100% not corny what is the book in your life that has given you courage
0: I really enjoyed enjoyed isn't quite the right word but I was really galvanized by um the book she said which came out I think about two years ago or a year ago which was written by the two journalists who essentially kind of took down Harvey Weinstein with a New York Times report and who'd been working for months if not years on that story and it essentially kind of tells the story of how it came about and the ins and outs and all the various obstacles they had to overcome in order to get that story out you know kind of fighting against this hugely powerful man and his huge legal team and like his PR people and private investigators and all his resources and i just found it very inspiring as an example of a kind of masterclass in journalism and what journalism can do and you know just the importance of really kind of sticking to your guns um and to your ethics and you know even when there are potential ramifications and repercussions that you might suffer as i'm sure those women were you know afraid of suffering i find women who speak out about experiences they've suffered in the workplace and people who enable them to do that i find that really Really inspirational. I think that for me was quite inspirational in choosing to be as candid about my own experiences as I am in my own book.
1: And what is something that has improved your life? This can be a habit or a routine?
0: Oh, it's actually really funny. So I am a bit of a lazy cook and <laughs> me I Me too. Oh my god, honestly. And I hadn't really realised this about myself until I moved in by myself um back in January of this year. And for the first couple of months, I was literally living off like Deliveroo, either Deliveroo takeaways or like a packet of crisps and a ready meal. And as you can imagine, I just started to feel really just like physically just like not great. Then I signed up to one of those kind of recipe kit delivery boxes. So you kind of pick your different recipes and they deliver it all, every single ingredient you need for a week's worth and they deliver it every week. And, you know, so you have to cook the meals, but everything's all there and they have all these delicious recipes. And that has really, really changed how I eat um, and made me eat a lot more healthily. It made me eat a lot more vegetables, actually made sure that I have kind of two square meals a day. And I think about it often, like every time I'm cooking with one of these recipe boxes, I'm like, this is really, really good and I'm going to carry on doing it. So that has actually been a really important change that I've made in the past couple of months because I don't necessarily eat as healthily as I should but I definitely want to try and that has made it really easy for me to do it.
1: Yeah you know I'm the same I've never really been into salads or that healthy dieting thing and I, I just never have and even when I've tried it never really lasts so I try and pack my fridge full of vegetables and then what happens is I again I'm quite a lazy cook and I don't know what to do with them and then they go you know I'm wasting food because it goes off because I don't know what to do with them so I, uh, I I need to do this because I keep I maybe it's a sign because I keep being told about these recipes
0: no it's yeah it's the it's life-changing
1: and my last question is what would you do if you were not afraid
0: I think probably like you know in this very moment you know pandemic notwithstanding. I'd probably move to a different country for a bit um which is something that I want to do anyway like I have you know I really want to get fluent in Spanish like I speak the tiniest amount of Spanish from like GCSE um and if I could sort of just pick up and do something without having to think about my responsibilities or my work or my next book deal it probably would just be you know going to Barcelona for like a year and maybe working from there but just kind of trying to improve my Spanish and it's something you know it's something that I want to try and make happen in the next couple of years however I need to arrange it but when I think about it in real life I think about all the various things I need to do to make that happen and how it needs to work around work and oh my flat do I need to rent out all these sorts of things but if I could just pick up and do it without having to think about any of the drawbacks or any of the arrangements that's probably what I would do like tomorrow if I could.
1: Thanks to Otega Owagba for joining me on the podcast. Next week, I'll be speaking to psychotherapist John Hawker and career coach Tracy Forsyth. Keep up to date by liking, reviewing, and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favorite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations, or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Oli Guyou. Additional creative support from Selena Christophus, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller, and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Martin. Thanks for listening.